Is money slipping through your fingers? Are you missing your opportunity to become a millionaire? Welcome to The Millionaire Choice, where we talk to millionaires and future millionaires about how to build wealth and what to do with it once you have it. We're here to help you do two things. Make your millionaire choice and create your own millionaire plan. Here's your host, speaker, wealth coach, and author of The Millionaire Choice. He made his choice and he created his millionaire plan at age 25. Now it's your turn. Welcome your host, Tony Bradshaw. Well, welcome back to the Millionaire Choice Show. Today, I guarantee you're going to have a good time listening to Jeremy Feta. He's the founder, owner of Wealth Dynamics. He's specialized in financial education and services, you know, especially with alternative assets. You guys know that uh, I like you to spread your money around. I like to spread my money around. I don't like to keep it all in 401ks and then mutual funds. It's probably not the best idea, especially in the season of life that we're living in economically. He's also the author of Blueprint to Financial Freedom, How to Create Wealth, and the Daily uh, Financial Journal, uh, Big Three Challenge Journal. Thanks for coming on the show, Jerry. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Tony. I'm excited for it. Yeah, man. Uh, in the pre-show, man, you shared with me. I got to say, like, you know, I've, I've done 75 of these now, and I've talked to a lot of different people. All of our stories have a lot of patterns and similarities. But yours has uh, a lot of barriers. Like, you know, if, if, if anybody had an excuse not to build wealth, and become a millionaire. I think you would be one of the poster children for that for that story, right? Yeah, totally. I think uh, you know, and, and and if I go back to where I grew up from, a lot of people have that same type of story, and that's the that's the environment. Unfortunately, is we can't make it. We're not supposed to. Wealth is for other people. Yeah, and that's that's just a lie. That's one of those lies that keeps us held down, keeps us kind of stuck where we are, you know, stuck in the system. But it's just far. It's the farthest thing from the truth. I'm a story like that. You're a story like that. Well, let's get into it. Share share it with the audience, the future millionaires listening. Yeah, yeah. So I own a company called Wealth Dynamics, and um, you know, our our whole thing is is you know um, helping families achieve financial education, like real financial literacy, not not financial consumerism and marketing dressed up like education. So we go back and, and this is part of my story. I went back at one point, I was a, a mainstream financial advisor, um, actually with Dave Ramsey. So in your neck of the woods, I was a, a Dave Ramsey, you know, a client and then also an endorsed local provider in like eight states for investing. And um, I started studying like, what do the wealthy actually do with their money? And it turned out it wasn't mutual funds and, and, and 401ks and annuities like you'd mentioned. So imagine um, that, right? Exactly. So we teach like, where do they actually invest? And what's fun and unique is because I've been on both sides of it. now. I was really good at, at telling you why you needed to buy my mutual funds and, and, and my investments. So, you know, that's an area where we focus on. And then we also focus on solvency. You'd mentioned we're in some interesting times right now. The families that have made it, the individuals that have made it, you know, they had very high reserves. You know, they were properly protected. They didn't have a bunch of consumer debt and outflow. They had a lot of income coming in. And so there's a solvency aspect that we cover. And then really, it's about financial freedom. You know, we, we believe, you know, financial freedom, um, you know, happens at the point of financial independence. I have passive income that exceeds my savings, expenses, and taxes. And then we just continue building towards that, you know, and, and I relate it. And this is part of my backstory. I relate it to having the ability to treat money like oxygen, right? Like when we breathe, you know, we don't think about how many breaths we have. We don't live, you know, breath to breath, like we live paycheck to paycheck. 
Um, and then we also don't hold our breath. You know, we're afraid to let it go and get rid of it. We just take in what we need and get rid of it as we don't need it anymore. So that's, that's a little bit about me, a little bit about my company, what we do. Awesome. Awesome. Now, you know, you didn't grow up with money. A lot of times, you know, you mentioned uh, being stuck in the mindset, you know, that's where we were kind of born into poverty or born into low income. And we think that's where we stay. That's, you know, it's, it's a lie. That's a lie. It's not true, especially in America. You know, I quote the stat all the time, uh, 40% of roughly 40% of millionaires in the whole world live in America. When you look at the numbers statistically by population, America should have no more than about like 3% of the world's millionaires by population, but yet we have 40%. So the reason for that is, is because of America's co- economy and financial system. There's just so much opportunity here where other countries don't have that. They don't have the laws, the protections, the systems, um, you know, the ability to build wealth in those countries like that, like exist here in America. Um, also uh, the barriers, right? And so, and it's not to dismiss that people have problems and there's, there's barriers to it that make it more difficult. You know, for some people it's easier, for some people it's not, you still all have to go through the same challenges, but yeah. And you had some of the, of everybody I've had on the show, you had some of the, the most difficult things I think to overcome uh, in your childhood, right? What did that look like? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you told me about the, the guy in the Chinese concentration camp, it wasn't anything that big, but I think for me, it was consistent. It was one challenge after the next. And so that kind of just became my life. Um, you know, for me, I think I was telling you around four or five, I started noticing, you know, my, my parents fought a lot. Like it wasn't uncommon to hear, you know, shouting and swearing and, you know, things breaking and stuff in the house. Um, and it was usually over finances. And so, um, you know, long story short, my mom and dad got, got divorced and remarried to and from each other, like two or three different times. Um, and it was always about money at the end of the day. Um, my dad's name was William. So my mom would call him bill, like, like here's the bills. Um, and so when I was eight or nine, uh, actually that summer, this was all in the same summer. It was a grand slam, um, house got foreclosed on, we lost it. Um, mom and dad got divorced again. Uh, and then we had the car repoed. So, and then on top of that, you know, we were then splitting time between mom and dad. So we were homeless on both sides with my dad. We were living in a tent for, um, the summer. I was eight, so I thought we were camping. I, it didn't feel like we were homeless, but we didn't have an, an apartment or a house to go back to. Um, and then on my mom's side, we were living in a, in a uh, camper trailer behind somebody's house. Um, and so again, it was like, you know, I just thought we were camping out in the backyard, but, you know, again, we didn't have somewhere else we could go. So that was kind of like my early upbringings with money. Needless to say, like, um, it was already kind of taboo. And then on top of that, it was an area for me that had a lot of negativity associated with it, a lot of painful emotion, um, you know, memories that were, um, I was a tough kid. So I wouldn't say they were traumatic. Like I turned out fine. It wasn't something I dwelled upon, but it definitely wasn't like I got the warm and fuzzies when I thought about money. It was kind of like, why would I want anything to do with that? Um, and so that was kind of my upbringing. And then as I started growing up and I started working, um, you know, I had someone share with me and I think it was, I think it was maybe my older brother had told me that the dollar wasn't backed by anything. And, and I knew like, I knew that there was like the concept of like, okay, well, there's somehow there's supposed to be like gold behind the dollar. And that wasn't the case anymore. And I made the decision, this was like 17 years old. I made the decision that I was not going to, um, live my life basically working for monopoly money. I watched it destroy my parents' life, my family. Uh, and so I was like, man, I'm not going to play that game. And on top of that, if it's not even valuable, why would I want it? Why would I work for it? Um, and so I, I basically just like, I'm gonna have fun. I'm going to enjoy life. I'm not going to, 
you know, I'll work when I need it so I can buy the things that I want and that's it. I'm not going to save. I'm not going to invest. I'm not going to try and build a business or any of that. Um, and, 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 and I didn't realize at the time, Tony, everyone has the, the same three options with finances. We can choose poverty, right? I, like I did at the time, I chose poverty. I was like, I'm, I'm opting out of the financial system. We can choose denial, right? I'm going to um, pretend like everything's peachy and I'm going to just contribute to the 401k account and try and pay the house down and go to Olive Gardens on the weekend and drive a German vehicle if I can. Um, or we can choose wealth. I'm going to have so much of it that, that it doesn't matter. It, like I said, it's treating money like oxygen. I take in what I need. I let go of it when I don't need it anymore. And, and I don't even think about it because it's just there. I don't think about breathing. It's just when I breathe, I breathe. Right. And so that was the decision I made was poverty, um, which fast forward a couple of years later, I got married to my wife, Lexi, um, which was my high school sweetheart. We ended up homeless within the first six months of being married again. Um, I, don't, I don't know what it was with the homeless trend because I didn't enjoy it, but I kept going back to situations where I was like that. Um, and so we ended up living in an abandoned house for a couple of months, um, squatting. The owner's kids um, came in one day because they sold the house and didn't know we were there. So they actually caught us like sleeping on a, on a mattress on the floor in one of the upstairs bedrooms. And they're like, who the hell are you guys? <laughs> So that was that was a little bit about my upbringing and backstory. Um, and for me, there was a turning point when I started my business. Ironically, I got into financial services, right? And that's like, I think at a certain point, I was like, okay, I need to learn about money. Like, this is not working. The idea that I'm just not going to be involved it dragged me along, kicking and screaming. And so I was like, okay, well, what better way to to figure this out than to be a professional in that arena? Um, and so there was a moment when I was working, I was actually commuting from Alaska where I lived down to Minnesota. And I was doing that about every two weeks. And, um, there was a moment where I went down there, I'd spend my last time on a credit card to buy my plane ticket. The idea was I was going to go do some business down there, close some sales, get the money to come back up. None of that happened. I ended up in the hotel room with, I think one day left in the hotel. It's February in Minnesota. Um, the rental car had expired and I didn't return it because otherwise I'd have no way home. And I didn't have the money to buy the one-way ticket back to Alaska. So I was like one day away from being homeless again, but this time in Minnesota in February where I didn't know anyone. And um, I made the decision at that point in my, in my life, I'll never let this happen to me again. Like, this is it. This is the last time. Um, and from there, I turned the corner. But everything up till then was that type of story and that type of experience. Um, and so, like I said, I was Mr. Consistent. Just somehow, I kept on pulling in bad financial situations. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's that you gloss over a lot of that, man. You delivered it. We're going to have to re park on that for a little bit. But yeah, I think what the biggest thing there when you hear that, and I think you're talking about breaking free, right? So, and uh, some of that came from your parents, some of it came from you. I call those kind of like ungodly beliefs. It's kind of like self fulfilling prophecies. You kind of think your life is like that. So you kind of almost create it unknowingly or unconsciously, or even if some people might say on a spiritual realm. But, uh, but yeah, you broke free from that. But let's rewind the, the tape a little bit. And talk about some of that stuff you hit because you you were young. You said it, I think the first thing I want to touch on is your parents uh, going through uh, divorce. You said again, how many times did your parents you know break up, get back together? Because there's a lot of trauma in that for a kid. I think. Yeah, I think it was um, it was at least three times. There's one one for sure when I was little. Uh, then they got back together again, and then there was another one when I was little, and then there was another one when I was when we moved to Alaska. And then the final one, it was actually maybe four times. The final one, I was a teenager, right? I was in high school. And at that point, like you said, it was, it was like traumatic, but it's kind of like uh, when a painful thing keeps happening at a certain point, it just feels normal. 
And so at that point in time, I was just like, for me, I didn't like that they were getting back together. I was like, guys, we, we tried this. We, we already know it doesn't work. Like, let's just not. Right. And so by that point, I think I had built a tough skin where it wasn't this um, traumatic thing in my life. But, you know, growing up, it definitely was uh, a pain point. There was a lot of, um, you know, as a kid having to choose between mom and dad, it's not like you're picking what, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream. It's like, which which parents do I want to live with? A lot of times they're asking you to side with them against the other one. Um, and so that was, that was definitely early on very hard. And then as it happened more and more, I was just like, okay, I'm kind of tired of this. Yeah. I think over the years, you know, I've been married 23 years, but they were, you know, for my wife, on my wife's side, hard fought years for a few of them. We're, we're in a great, tremendously great place today, you know, to Valentine's Day, no less we're recording this. And, uh, but you, the interesting thing I think is I've grown up and gotten a little bit older. I just start to realize, you know, even your parents' story, that there's a lot of pain that they had before they ever got together that caused that pain, you know. And and I think a lot of people, the reason I'm parking on this, is because a lot of people that might be listening to the podcast today might be going through some pain, even in their own marriage, and not realizing why, like not realizing why why things are like the way they are. But uh, you know, what I've learned is that you you can get stuck in that. Like even as a married couple, no matter your best intentions, no one gets married planning on getting divorced. It just doesn't work that way. You you think you don't get married and say, Hey, in 10 years, we're going to get split up. Or, you know, we've got some friends that are 36 years married and split up. And what happens is you just, you bring in your baggage, you know, your life baggage. It can be baggage that you didn't even create. It can be baggage from your parents, baggage from your grandparents. And you just got to be willing to tackle it. So, you know, we went, my wife and I actually went through and got a lot of help and that, that helped us get over the hump. But, you know, it was a little bit scary going and admitting your flaws and your problems, but getting past it. But I can't imagine what that was like for you, man. That's, that's gotta be tough. Um, now with that, you, you went through that and you mentioned being in the middle of, um, being homeless, you know, at, at age eight, I think you said, so you spent, you said you lived in a tent, but how long were you in that tent and how long were you in that trailer uh, without, you know, hookups, right? You didn't have, you didn't have power on the trailer, did you? you know, or water? No. Yeah. It was just uh, in, in someone's backyard unhooked. Um, I think we tent camped for like, I want to say it was like six or eight weeks. You have, to, you have to excuse my dog here. He just climbed up. Hi buddy. Um, it was like six or eight weeks. And, uh, you know, I was eight. So I thought, I thought we were camping to me. It was great. You know, we sleep outside, we don't shower, we go fishing every day. Um, so on, on my dad's side, that was brilliant. Like that's we a man's dream right there. Right. That's a man's dream. But as an adult, when I look back and I'm like, Hey, we didn't like, what if the tent broke? We didn't have anywhere else to sleep that night, you know? And then it's like, I, I see what was going on there. Um, on my mom's side, you know, we, like I said, we were, we were sleeping in a camper, um, behind someone's house. So there wasn't any hookups there. I forget how long we were there. Um, it didn't have, didn't have running, running water or septic. So we were going to the bathroom in a, in a Folgers coffee can. And, uh, that came to an end kind of comedically where I, I went number one in the can one morning and I was tired and I dropped it on the floor in the trailer. And so it spilled my, my number one all over the carpet. And then, you know, I think they, uh, the owner of the trailer didn't want to clean it or deal with it. So I think at that point they let us sleep in their living room. So that one kind of wrapped up nicely where it's like, okay, cool. We can't, we can't sleep in the trailer anymore. Now we're going to sleep in this person's living room. Wow. Yeah. And as a kid, I mean, kids are so resilient. Uh, just the problems, you just kind of like roll with it and you don't really understand, you know, even how that kind of stuff affects you until later. Do you think, uh, through all that, uh, in that time, 
did you feel like a lot of, did you feel very insecure? Did you have a brother and sister, you know, obviously dealing with a lot of insecurities because things that you kind of need there for a foundation of a family, those things aren't there. You didn't have, your parents were separated and you didn't have a house or a place to call home. Yeah. I had two, two brothers at the time. My family's really big. So I, my mom and dad were both married before they met each other. So all in all, I think there's like, if I count up all my siblings, I think there's like 16 or 18 of them. Um, which is a lot, but I had two full brothers. Like my mom and dad had three boys. So me and my two brothers, one older, one younger, um, you know, and so there's a, with brothers, we're not like, you know, sharing our feelings with each other, but we're there, we keep each other entertained. You know, we, we fight, we do whatever. And it kind of keeps things, you know, fun and interesting. Like you said, as a kid, you can turn almost anything into a game, you know, and, and it doesn't, as an adult, it's like, if you're sleeping in a trailer, you're kind of down in the dumps and mentally, you're probably not at a good place. As a kid, you can wake up and be like, this is great, you know, and then you go play with your toys and you have a great day and you don't think about that. So I think it was helpful that I had siblings, um, you know, and as I turned into a teenager, I think that that um, from an insecurity standpoint, I was kind of a quiet kid, but also popular, right? So I, I, I could have a lot of friends, but I didn't hang out with a lot of people. Everyone liked me, but I, I, w- I kind of kept to myself a little bit. So I think maybe that had something to do with it on, you know. Um, you know, I was kind of to myself already. I didn't have a lot of people in my family that, that got along. It was very dysfunctional. So I think there's maybe an element of that, you know, on, on, you know, just focusing on my own thing, keeping myself busy, you know, whether that was getting good grades or doing sports. Um, I later got into bodybuilding. That was something that I was able to like, you know, nobody could ruin it. It was, it wasn't like a, a, someone else could not do my diet or someone else could skip the gym for me. Like it was all within my control. So I think there was an element of that where I really stuck to things that I could be by myself. There wasn't other people that could come in and mess it up. If I put in the work, I would see the result. And and that's probably where some of that came from. Yeah. Yeah, it's you're exactly right. Like just being able to get by with the kids, it, the distractions, I think help a lot. You know, even the hardships that I went through, I don't think I really saw them as hardships. Not until I got older and it's like, oh, there were a couple that I, that were that way, but I did, I had to figure that out later, how they really played out. Now, you said you got married, what was it, 19? I was 19, yeah, and then she was 18. Um, and we started dating, I think she was in ninth grade and I was in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. And um, we dated through high school and then uh, we got married right after. Yeah, and then, so uh, didn't, how long did you have a, you know, stability in your marriage before you ended up being homeless again? A good six months. (laughs) Now did she, now I can tell you, like, I gotta be honest with you. Like when I was getting married, I was trying to, I was living with my mom and dad paying a studio bedroom apartment rent to my parents, which was a great deal. I was socking away money, paying off debt and putting money in investments at 25. And then, um, out of college and then, and then, you know, was getting married and found a house, but I tried to, I was going to do it the cheapest way possible because I was like a no debt guy. That's where my head was at. It's like no debt. I don't want debt. And uh, trying to get her to move into a trailer because I'm like, shoot, I could buy some land in a trailer for 40 grand, get that thing in there, pay it off in about five years, be done. And uh, my wife was like, no, I'm not doing the trailer thing. And then so we had to find another place. But, you know, I can't imagine what the stress in the marriage from being homeless with your wife. What was that like? It was it was interesting. So um, we couch surfed for a little while and that wasn't as bad, you know, because there was you know, there was, there's was people we knew and, and loved and trusted and stuff, even though it wasn't our house, they were letting us stay with them. Um, once we, so we, there was like a couple of months we couch surf, we moved into an abandoned house. Um, kind of a weird story. My mom knew this guy 
uh, he said that we could stay at his place, but then he had some kind of a, I don't know if it was a heart attack or a stroke. So he basically went like totally like incapacitated. Um, they didn't say anything about, we couldn't stay there. So we went ahead and did anyways, without anyone really knowing we were doing that. Um, and so we were squatting there, uh, for a couple of months and, uh, <laughs> the first night I remember, remember my wife cried herself to sleep. It was definitely a, um, you know, a time where it was like bottom, like there were, there were, there were like, there was no, no other option. We were in Alaska. So it's not like we were going to sleep on the sidewalk or in the woods, like the bottom of, of where we would potentially ever possibly be, would be sleeping in an abandoned house without someone's permission. Um, so that was kind of weird. That was definitely a stressful time. We were there for a couple of months. Um, I had the same mindset as you though. I, for me, like, and I had that experience already growing up. She didn't. So she had a, you know, her mom was there. They always had a good place to stay. All of those things for me, I was like, this is great. We don't have rent, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> There's one less expense we have because we're, we're squatting in this house, but, um, uh, we were there for a couple of months. And then the, uh, the kids that actually were like the trustees and owners of the house at the time. They had no idea where we were there. So they came in one day to sell it and we were sleeping in the bedroom upstairs. And um, I remember we were on a mattress on the floor and the guy, he had a, the guy that lived there before he had a Jack Russell Terrier, little dog. And I remember there was this giant hole in the floor. Like I didn't know how or why it got there, but it was big enough that that Jack Russell Terrier could have fallen in the hole. So we had like, you know, the mattress on the floor wood flooring near the mattress was this giant hole. So if you woke up in the middle of the night, you had to make sure you didn't like, you know, fall in the hole yourself with your leg. Um, and then basically one morning I wake up on a Sunday and there's this lady peeking through the crack in the door. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, sleeping on the mattress with my wife. And I hear her say, guys, there's people in here. And so, um, you know, I put some pants and stuff on, go downstairs and there's like this whole family there, like packing boxes and like, just probably the most awkward moment I've ever been in, right? Like they didn't know I was there. I didn't know who they were. I knew I wasn't supposed to be there. And uh, it's like, you know, when something's so awkward, you can't confront it. Like you just like, you try and pretend like something is not happening and you distract it with whatever. So I start cooking breakfast. I just, I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to start cooking some eggs. I offered them some <laughs> breakfast. I was like, do you guys want any? And uh they were like, no. And then finally, like the lady was like, who the hell are you? Like, why are you here? And like, I didn't really have a good answer for them because I knew like they didn't know who I was. We had permission to stay there at one point. And then that guy couldn't, couldn't, um, couldn't, you know, back himself up on that permission. So it was like, uh, and then she's like, regardless, you guys have seven days to be out. The house is sold. You're not supposed to be here. We didn't invite you. We don't even know who you are. Like you need to be out by Friday. And, uh, that was, that was definitely like a stressful time for, for my marriage, for Lexi. Um, I wouldn't say it was as much for me because that was kind of what I grew up with. It was just another day at the office, right? <laughs> yeah, man. I'll tell you what, you know, I, I came to the realization a few months ago. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, uh, you know, our past sometimes it scares us, but I think being vulnerable gives, uh, allows us to give other people power who might be struggling or going through things. So thanks for sharing that. But yeah, I was thinking, you know, growing up, my house, you know, this is not to embarrass my family or my, my parents, but, you know, uh, and I've, I've just come to come, kind of come to this this conclusion is <laughs> it's crazy, man. Life can be so crazy. But, you know, the things we went through, you know, even to the point, you know, my dad was a carpenter. He didn't take really good care of a house, but he grew up without a dad in his life, no family. Um, very, both my parents grew up in very broken homes. 
And so I count myself very blessed just that my parents were able to stay together. You know, that part of life was a little bit more stable uh, than my parents had. You know, my, my dad dropped out of school in ninth or 10th grade to support himself because he didn't have a family that would support him. And, uh, and he really never learned to take care of a house, you know, and, and we had a house. It was a nice house when they bought it. But over the years, it continued to kind of get run down. And I think the discipline of just going, hey, you know, take care of your, your stuff. Um, and, you know, had a friend come through the back door one day and the floor had been rotten out a little bit. And the guy weighed about 350 pounds, was about six foot six and fell through the floor of our house, you know. <laughs> and, and luckily it was only about an 18 inch drop, you know, because there was dirt below there, but he, he dropped 18 inches solid on his knee at 350 pounds. You can imagine yeah, how much that hurt. And he limped for a while after that. Like it was, it was pretty bad. And, uh, you know that, and I could just story after story, but what hit me is, you know, when, when we go through that, even my wife, you know, and, that, and where I was going with that was like, I had to, I had to really slow down a couple of months ago, because I've put my wife through a lot of issues. Like we've had to do a lot of hard work, mostly because of me. Um, and I just told her one day, I say, I was like, honey, you know, it just hit me the other day. I'm like, thank you for marrying me because I was a train wreck. Like the, you know, the house I grew up in, the, the way things were taken care of, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in, like she grew up, her dad was a police officer. Her mom worked on trains and uh, on the, for the railroad actually. And, um, you know, both, you know, middle-class, lower, lower income kind of families, not, not wealthy or anything, but put together. And, and I think that's what hit me. And I think I'm hearing a lot of that from you. Like your, your wife came from a stable background. There were certain things that she just kind of came to appreciate about life. And she probably took for granted. And then she got married to Jerry. <laughs> and she's like, I did not sign up for this, right? Yeah. And so you said she went to bed crying that night. Like, how? What was that like? Like, you're you're trying to translate. Obviously, you're getting transformed as a man, becoming, you know, the best version of yourself. It looks like you know you've obviously turned everything around as far as you know the trajectory you're on. You like to, hey, I don't want to be on that train. Let me get on a different train, and you you know you jump, jump tracks. Um, but what was? How did that work for you and her? Because that sounds like some of the most marital stress she probably could have gone through yeah i mean for us um being so being younger i think you know we still had a little bit of that resilience of like you know sure it sucks but we're together and, and we can have fun and do different things the honeymoon um, phase the honeymoon phase right yeah exactly so i think there was an element of that and neither of us grew up with with money so i think you know we were we were in a stage where we still could appreciate the simple things one night we found, uh, we found shrimp in the guy's freezer and we're like, Hey, we're having shrimp for dinner. Like it was awesome. Right. So we could like celebrate those little wins. Um, so I think that that was part of it. Once we moved out, like, cause we had to move out, her mom ended up helping us get into an apartment. And I think that that was, um, a moment for us where we both realized like, okay, like it's fine for us to be irresponsible, but it just costed someone money and, you know, stress for her mom now too. Um, and so that was an area where we both kind of made the agreement of, okay, now we like, we need to both turn it around. And I don't think she needed to turn around. It was me, but I kind of saw eye to eye with where she was at on, okay, we need to, you know, have a stable place. We need to be earning income. We need to be saving money. We need to be doing a lot of the basic things that most people would do, um, instead of just, you know, living on a prayer and, and sleeping from couch to couch and not really thinking about the future. Yeah, absolutely. So now how long have you guys been married now? 
Uh, this August, it'll be 10 years. Congratulations, man. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. yeah. Cause I think most people would have looked at what you went through early on and probably said, you guys are never going to make it. Uh, yeah, we had uh, a lot of that, that from, uh, you know, we're friends and family when we got there, like, don't do it. This is a bad idea. It's not going to last that type of thing. Yeah. Well, I imagine, especially on her side that her friends and family were probably trying to discourage her, uh, early on. I would think if you were, you know, going through all the instability that you seem to be have had is that would you say that's true yeah actually funny story is um you know when i when i proposed to her like she said yes and then i <laughs> i went to ask for her mom's like permission and her mom straight up said no she's like no and then the the, the day of the wedding she was she was trying not to come to the wedding she was like trying to uh you know convince my wife to go garage sailing instead and um so it was like definitely and i don't blame her that was i was i was a wild cannon and i i was I think she saw that and and knew that about me. And I don't mm -hmm. think a lot of people are there because I was, you know, church kid, good grades, all that other stuff. There was this underlying, you know, messiness and turmoil. Um, and so that was definitely, um, you know, something that her mom, I think, spotted. My, I had some friends and family too that were like, hey, don't do it. Most of them were, um, I think, trying to, trying to look out for what was best for us and trying to prevent any heartache or turmoil. But everything we went through, especially early on, we grew from. And that's the important thing is that, you know, we didn't take it as a loss. We didn't look at this and say, it's not working. Um, we're like, okay, great. You know, we're climbing. This was a tough spot. And if we keep going up higher, it's probably going to get easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the beautiful thing is you've probably hit about rock bottom. I mean, there, there are a few things that can happen. Just, uh, you know, just be aware, uh, you know, after being married 23 years, I think, and all the people we talk to and friends that break up, you kind of, I always thought there would be a place where you'd get safe, right? Where your marriage would be safe. You didn't have to worry about getting divorced or breaking up or anything like that. And what mm -hmm. I found is that it just, that's an illusion. Like, you know, nobody gets married wanting to be divorced or thinking they're going to get divorced, but because they're not prepared or they're not preparing their marriage for, for the, for the rainy day, it ends up coming and happening to them anyway. And, you know, I got, I got freaking dangerously, dangerously close. It's a miracle. We're still together, but but uh, we've been, I've been on good behavior for a while now and things are in a lot better place. But uh, yeah, so you turned the corner, man. And then you started getting into financial world. Let's talk about that because I want to leave the, the future millionaires listening to the show a, uh, a little bit of wisdom from you because you've, you've definitely turned your life around and gotten on the right track. Yeah. So I got into finances at, um, it was actually a 19. So it was, it was around when I got married. Um, I was a personal trainer. I was a bodybuilder. And so I, I thought that that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life was, you know, um, compete as a bodybuilder. I wanted to win Mr. Olympia. Um, I was going to own a gym. And so, um, I got a job as a, as a personal trainer, actually within six months, I got promoted to the lead personal trainer of the entire gym, thought it was awesome. And then, um, I started to get burnt out on it. I realized like, a, if I'm going to, like, if I'm going to advance, someone's either got to quit, retire or die. There's just, there's not another spot for me on the ladder until that happens. Um, and so I had a friend that got into financial services and he was a mentor of mine. He's actually the, the guy that got me into bodybuilding. And he was basically telling me like, Hey, you need to check this out. And he knew I didn't, I don't think he knew my financial background, but he knew that I liked to help people and he knew that I was smart. And somehow he saw that I'd have a knack for finances, even though I had, he saw something in me. I didn't know I had, if I were to like, look at my resume financially at the time, I'd be like, I'm the last person that should ever be involved with a financial services industry position of any sort. Right. Um, so I got involved. I, I went and I saw kind of what it was about and what really rung for me was help. Right. I saw the statistics. I saw, you know, paycheck to paycheck. People are swimming in debt. 
They've got no savings. And, you know, number one, I realized that's how I grew up. And for the first time, someone showed me solutions. Yeah. And it's kind of like one of those moments where you're like, if I would have known this or my parents would have known this at the time when it happened, so much would have been different. And so there was kind of a, you know, a passion and an urgency on like, I, I need to, I need to do this. And also I need to tell other people about this so they don't go through the same thing I went through. Um, and then I also saw a lot of parallel between fitness and finances, right? It's a lot of the same stuff. You got to eat more than you burn. You got to, or sorry, you got to burn more than you eat. You got to earn more than you spend, right? You've got to, um, you know, you've got to understand finances, just like you have to understand your body and exercise and all these different things. So I saw some parallels there. And I also saw, you know, a, 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 um, probably a similarity in the amount of personal responsibility and self-discipline that has to occur for someone to be successful with finances, just like in the gym, right? Like no one, no one can do my finances for me. No one can go to the gym for me. I've got to be dedicated and, and consistent. So I saw all of that and I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And I started with a pretty large agency. I did that for a couple of years, got licensed, got trained. Um, and I got the opportunity to partner up with um, Dave Ramsey, actually down in, in the Nashville area. Um, and so I, I worked with Dave as an endorsed local provider um, for investing. And I did that you know, for a number of years. I think we expanded to like eight states at the time. And um, all of it was what I would consider mainstream and retail financial services. They weren't investments, they were products. Right, mm-hmm. like if someone in a boardroom got together with their 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 board members and said, "What what can we sell to the consumer in the financial world that makes us the most money without us going to prison?" And that's you know how these products <laughs> exist. Um, so so that's, say it one more time. Say it one more time. What, what, what can we make? What can we make and sell to the consumer that makes us the most amount of money without going to prison? Um, <laughs> and if you think about it, you know that's how financial service you know products and services work is. A lot of times, the only guarantee is the fee and the commission. The consumer doesn't have any downside protection. There's no promise of anything. Um, you know, a lot of times it is a giant social experience, experiment. For example, the 401k, we've never had a full generation of people successfully contribute to, withdraw from, and, and die having used the 401k for the retirement. So we don't know how that's going to turn out. You mean, the four, the, you mean the 401k prop up? Yeah, it, yeah prop, exactly. Prop, that props up the stock market because you have an endless flow of dollars going into the stock market. It just causes massive market displacement. It's a for them. It's a genius tool. Everything oh, that that Wall Street built is brilliant for them. Well, yeah. Well, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna sidetrack you just for a minute because that's a wonderful piece. I probably ought to write a book or get on the show. There's a few books out there, but what you're you, everything you've described. Once you really clarify, is that the entire system is designed that way? The entire system. When you go. No one ever taught my parents how to manage money. No one ever taught me how to manage money. No, one, you go of all the things that somebody should be taught. When they you talk be. about three hundred million Americans, that should be the number one thing you should spend twelve years learning about money. Not yeah. not math that you'll never use. Like it's ridiculous, right? So then you have to ask the question: Why? 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 Why would why would these smart people? Because they're not dumb people. Why would these smart people not teach Americans? and the world, the most basic thing that should be taught and learned by everyone? And the answer is really simple because wealthy people are not controllable. Wealthy people will not be controlled the way that poor people can be controlled. And and that's that's where you really get to it. And then you get to the system. Then you go, okay, well, why is the system designed, uh, like I said, to f- the stock market, which is you know what I call fake money. You can use the system if you understand it. So I've got some friends 
that would laugh at me for saying that because they have made millions and millions of dollars in the stock market. Mm-hmm. But the reality is it's still fake money because when everybody tries to pull it out, it doesn't really exist. It's not there. It's all based on market capitalization, which is if I buy it for more than you bought it for, then it drives the price up on Tesla, Google, whatever. Yeah. But if you if everybody starts trying to sell it at the same time, it's bank run. It's bank run. It's it's back to zero. So yeah. the only real money is comes back to the basics, which is uh, land and real estate, business, gold and silver, right? Mm-hmm. And so and and I and I, when you look at J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, they own over six hundred million ounces of uh, silver today. Yeah. And you have to go why why they've been buying up silver for the last decade? Well, because they know that there's going to be a bank run on the stock market at some point in the future. And you're and you're going to see it drop, and so they use the system to prop up and create fake money, which is the dollar. You said wasn't it bought by gold? Wasn't backed by gold? It's only backed by belief right now. We're seeing that erode very very quickly with inflation, but they're using that money to build up a system, and they're taking that money right now, and they're the ones that are buying gold and silver. So they're buying yeah. their they're buying the real assets. Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, they're buying up all the land. All so the they're. They're using the fake money to buy up the land, gold, and silver. I just saw, you know, I'm going to step on some toes right quick, but I just saw that uh, Moderna CEO, one of the vaccine guys, right, just sold like over $100 million worth of stock out of Moderna, and he, and he erased his Twitter account. So it's like, well, what's that guy doing? What's he doing? Yeah. Well, they know something's up. But anyway, back to what you were saying. You, you spent all this time learning about, uh, you know, the products, right? Which you said were uh, the, the, the things that they could do without getting arrested. Yeah. And that's, that's where I um, kind of started turning a corner. You know, I, I had a friend, um, my best friend throughout middle school, actually. His dad um, never worked and they always had money. Like I would go to his house after school and like he's sitting in the hot tub reading a book or, you know, <laughs> putzing around his house. And like, like I didn't quite get like what was he do because I knew when my dad didn't work it, we weren't like it wasn't a chill atmosphere it was like very stressful and you could tell like things weren't going well when when my parents weren't working and that wasn't the case here and so um you know when I was doing the the financial services thing he was one of my first appointments my friend's dad and you know I was brand new you're supposed to go see your warm market and your friends and your family and he's, I was like this guy guaranteed I, you know best friends with his son go to his church. And basically like, you know, their adopted kid, uh, he'll definitely buy what I have. And so I sat down and I showed him the deal and did the little presentation. And he he regurgitated back to me exactly what I told him, but he simplified it where it sounded like he understood what I said better than I did. And when he explained it back to me, it did not sound like a good idea anymore. And I it kind of threw me. I was like, whoa, like this, uh, like, should I be selling? Like, should I be selling this? Is he is he gonna buy from me? I was like, torn. I didn't know what to do. And at the end of that meeting, I was again, 19, 20 years old. He says, Jerry, when you're ready to learn how money really works, I want you to come talk to me. And I didn't talk to him for years. I was burnt that he didn't buy from me. I was like, I need to go to the next person. And, and I need to, cause that's what it is, is you've got to earn just like anyone else. You've got to earn your commissions and grow your income, just like, you know, a realtor or a mortgage broker or anyone. Um, and so as a financial professional or advisor, like I just, I got to go make the next sale. So I was doing that for you know years and I got very successful at it. And um, at the time, I think this was in like 2016 or 2015, um, the movie, The Big Short came out. You've probably seen that. I haven't um, seen it, but I've seen lots of clips. But Okay, awesome movie. And it's based on a book, which is based on a real story. Um, my, my, again, my best friend's dad, my best friend has been a day trader since we were in high school. 
And when I got involved in finances, his name is Garrett. He kept telling me two things. He's like, read the big, the big short and read, read a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. And I blew him off. I was like, I don't have time. I've got to build my business. I've got to market, prospect, sell, whatever. So I watched the movie finally because it's shorter than the book. And um, you know, if you haven't seen it, it basically tells you what 2008 was all about. It was, not, it was intentional. It was caused. The people who caused it didn't even get in trouble. They gave themselves bonuses. Um, and in the movie, there's a character played by Ryan Gosling, and he's the broker. And he just goes around pitching the deal to everybody, getting commissions out of it. And I watched that movie. And at the end of the movie, I was sick to my stomach. I realized I was Ryan Gosling. I was a broker. I didn't have any skin in the game. You know, I was pitching whatever my, my managers and, and my wholesale relationships were telling me to pitch. I didn't know if they were good products or not. And if my clients got burned, it wasn't going to impact me at all. And I was basically going to be just the scumbag that sold it to them. Um, and so that kind of put me on a, on, a, on a little bit of a soul searching path. Um, and then I reached next for that book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. And I don't know if you've, have you read that one by G. Edward Griffin? I've got it. I'm going through it in Audible right now. And I've talked about that book on the show quite a few times. Yeah, it's a 24-hour Audible book. Yeah. So it's like, wow, you got to work hard to get through that, even in audio yeah. format. Yeah. And so, you know, it gives you the business on what's actually happening uh, mm -hmm. with the economy, with politics, with all of it. And I remember when I read that book, because I didn't know about any of the solutions yet. I remember being depressed for like a week. Because I was basically it's like, heavy. it's heavy. Life as we know it is a scam. And I, at the time, I didn't know, like, okay, okay, well, here's what I should do about it. So I was just like, everything I taught was wrong. There's no way out, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and then I watched a docuseries called The Hidden Secrets of Money. It's by Mike Maloney. Um, and it was a lot of the same stuff, but he started getting into some of the solutions, you know, buying gold and silver. Um, you know, I started looking at investing in real estate. And um, at that moment, I called my best friend's dad. This, and this was like probably, I don't know, five, maybe six years later, right? Four to six years later, I call him and I say, Hey, do you remember when I was 19 and we met and you said, call me when you're ready to learn about what money really is. And I was like, I'm ready to have that conversation. And, um, you know, we were on the phone for about two hours and he basically, he reiterated everything I had seen on the big short creature from Jekyll Island, hidden secrets of money, all of these different things I started learning about. Um, and in that moment, I realized I can't be a financial advisor anymore. I don't believe in it. It's not good for people. Uh, and I gave that business away. I built it up to, again, eight states. Um, you know, We were doing a, a decent amount of revenue for just being me and, and my team. And so we, we basically gave that business away to a colleague and um, started up what Wealth Dynamics is today. But at the time, it was like, we didn't even know what to sell. We didn't know what to offer. We just knew what's the problem. And I think that's a great place for anyone that wants to be a millionaire, figure out what's the problem. Like, what's the problem everyone is struggling with, especially if it's a problem they don't know about? Because if they knew about it, they would already be solving, right? So I figured out this whole system of, you know, economic manipulation and retail financial products and the Federal Reserve System, and it's all intertwined. That's a problem that literally impacts every man, woman, and child, regardless of race, gender, upbringing. It doesn't matter. I know people that are making you know millions of dollars a year that aren't educated on this and they're, they're at the effect of this system. Like you said, your buddies in the stock market. At some point, that game will end. And if you didn't withdraw more than you put in, you didn't make anything in the system. Yep. Right. And so that was, that was where I built my business and what we built it on today was helping people solve that problem, um, helping them break free from it and, and be independent in their lives financially.
Yeah. Well, I think the thing is what I tell people in this, the way the system set up, I love how you uh, eloquently put all that because it is a wake up call for people, especially right now. Uh, you know, the stock market's at record highs. Is it really going to stay that way? I personally don't think so. I think it's going to head south and I think it's going to head south in a big way. Uh, I don't know exactly when. Um, you know, Robert Kiyosaki's big gold guy. He doesn't have anything in the stock market. Uh, currently, I don't have anything in the stock market. So I haven't had for about five years, four, about four years. So uh, right before President Trump went in, I, I pulled uh, pretty much everything out. And, uh, but yeah, but learning how money, like the real system of money, and that's what's been very interesting is, you know, the people that, that run the system, when you look at the Federal Reserve Bank, which is not a, a federal bank and it's not reserve, it's not part of the U.S. government, it's, it exists outside the U.S. government, and so do all the other central banks all across the planet, uh, all yeah. exist outside of the government, it's a separate entity, and people don't really uh, realize that. And that's a very interesting thing. When you, when you start to realize that, you're like, oh, my God, why is our government in debt to an entity outside of our, uh, outside of the, our country or outside of our system? Why do our banks borrow money from that system? And why do they charge us 30% interest, which some of my customers have, or our clients? And you go, well, it's because the system is all connected. It's all designed to flow all the wealth, or at least the majority of the wealth, up to these very, very, very few people. And uh, yeah, and it, it's, a, it's a very diabolical system once you get to the bottom of it. And uh, how long did it take you to get through The Creature from Jekyll Island? I, I binge listened to that one. So it was, I think, a couple of weeks. Um, anytime I was driving, I did, I did pizza delivery when I was like 17 or 18. So I was used to listening stuff in the car. And so uh, I just put that on Audible like you did. And I just started listening through it. The one thing I would say and I would recommend, and especially for those listening, um, that is actually like a very hard book to fully digest on audible. I've had to go back with the hardcover and actually like study it. Cause there's just mm -hmm. so much there. So audible yeah. was great for me to intro on it. And then it was almost, it was almost like a Bible. Like you have to like get into the verses and like really get, you know, what does this yeah. mean? And how does it apply? You know? Yeah. It's one of those books. It's like, it's, it's kind of like if you were to take like finance 101, 201, you know, 102, 202, 304, like you have to, it's almost like a four-year college course to really get through that book and understand the implications of it all, especially if you're not in the financial world and you don't know some of that stuff already. Yeah. So yeah, if you're, if you're hearing it for the first time and you, it's probably going to be something you got to work through, but I'm a big believer that you need to do it because if you're going to exist in a system and be successful in a system, it's best to understand the system. Totally. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people fall short. Well, Jerry, man, this has been a great call. I'd love to probably have you back on. Let's go a little bit deeper into that because you're, you're definitely somebody who understands a lot of these same things that I'm looking into these days and trying to get people ready, right. For, for what's coming and what's already here, you know, the great reset following up on the great depression, so many similarities between the two. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy how they, it almost looks like a blueprint from, you know, 1920s to what we're going through today. And, uh, that can be a very scary thing for a lot of people. As you mentioned, the people with disposable income, people that were prepared, uh, did a lot better with, you know, the shutdowns than people who were not prepared, you know, that had high debt ratios and things like that. But how can people find out about you and the wealth dynamics and all your, you know, your blueprint to financial freedom, uh, those things that you have available for the listeners? Yeah. So first, if you uh, want to get a copy of uh, a chapter of my book, Blueprints of Financial Freedom, um, you can go to jerryfeta.com forward slash free chapter. Um, I'm sure Ter Tony can put that in the uh, the show notes. Um, but this basically is the blueprint. This is, you know, like we talked about today and we scratched really like the surface. We could do a whole nother couple of episodes and, and dive into it all. But 
Um, I basically outlined everything here that I did. And this is not stuff I came up with. This is stuff where I went back and I studied the wealthy, right? What are the top 1% actually doing? What have they done historically? Where do they invest? What do they stay away from? So it's all here. Um, and I wrote this in a way where it really is a blueprint. Someone can, without any help, start in the book and just follow the steps. And if they just do exactly what the book says, they're going to be fine. They're going to build wealth. Um, so again, that's jerryfeta.com forward slash free chapter. Um, you can also go to our website, wealthdynamics.com. And we have a ton of, of um, you know articles, videos, podcasts, just free financial education. Um, and I would say the hardest part for me on when I started learning about this was it was before... It was before podcasting and social media were huge. It was back in like 2016. So I had to go blaze the trail for myself. There was no resource I could plug into and just start learning all of this. So um, our website has a lot of the, the hard work done for you. You can just dive into these resources and start learning what you need to know right away. Um, and then for, for social media, if you follow me, Instagram is probably my, my most active account at Jerry Feta. Um, you know, connect with me there. Send me a DM if you want to connect. We always message everyone back. Uh, we'd love to have you there, part of our community. Wow, that's wonderful, Jerry. Well, man, thanks for being on the show, and I'm sure I'll be following up with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Tony. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wanted to talk to someone about what to do with your money or career, but you didn't know who to ask? You can try to figure out how money works on your own, but it's a lot easier and a lot less painful with a mentor. But not just any mentor. You need a money mentor. A money mentor helps you understand the ins and outs of money getting rid of your debt, setting up your investments, and figuring out ways to help you boost your income. Finding a money mentor is millionaire key number four, and it's one of the most important keys on your financial journey. Let me tell you about a special opportunity I have for you. For a limited time, I'm making myself available as your money mentor. You can book one hour with me for free. That's no charge. One hour may not sound like a lot, but with just one hour, I know I can have a huge impact on your life and finances. It's 100% free, no risk. Visit themillionairechoice.com and register for the free Money Mentor session. That's themillionairechoice.com and click on Money Mentor. That's a wrap for this episode of The Millionaire Choice. Remember, wealth is a result of getting smarter with your money. Wealth helps you enjoy life and help people. For resources, tools, and a community that will accelerate your millionaire journey, go to themillionairechoice.com. The Millionaire Choice Show shares the opinions and experiences of people and should not be considered financial advice. Before making your own financial choices, please seek out a registered financial advisor or certified financial planner.